this pretending to do things that you don't do is a serious problem. There's no group in the world that's able to pee on each other like physicians. I just think that that's stupid. If you have a policy like that, you need to have your head examined. Of course, their defense is, we just winged him. We just winged him. It was the hospital that killed him. I think that there are some fundamental skills that surgeons have. It's called stopping bleeding. Too little, too late. They hadn't activated the system correctly. Whenever a surgeon wants to take a patient to the OR, your response should be, God bless you, my son. The only thing opening the chest does is start the autopsy. It's a new year to be sued. Well, it's another month. It's January 2008. Who could have believed? Happy New Year! Well, exactly. I was going to say who could have believed at the beginning of the century that we would have got to 2008. Yeah, or that Rick and I would have been here. <laughs> Actually, that is what is surprising to me. So Rick is here, and Greg is here, of course, who's the star of the show. And it's a new year to be sued. So help me. Stop me from... Being sued. We'll do the best we can, Mel. This month, we'd like to start out with another a meaty area, one that every emergency department has to deal with. And I think that what we're going to speak to is to the majority of our listeners who are not at major trauma centers. We're going to imagine that we're in ABEM General, a medium-sized community hospital, and something bad has just come in. It is not that commonly seen. Let's say it's a rollover multiple vehicle accident. There are two or three people from this accident. Two of them are unconscious. What are the things over the next few hours that you can do or not do which are going to lead you straight to the courtroom as opposed to winning accolades for the job that you've done? And I think that whenever you're presented with trauma, serious major trauma, there's some rules we should remember. Number one, the amount of major trauma in the United States has actually gone down. Per highway mile, it's probably a third what it was. And that's simply because of seatbelt use, which has lowered accidents, airbags, and the inside design of vehicles. All of these have made a difference. But what it's also meant is the number of people who are skilled in this has actually gone down. Let me just talk about 10 trauma no-nos or mistakes which I've seen over the years which have caused lawsuits. Rule number one is too little, too late. Trauma is a time-related disease, and nobody is a bigger advocate of emergency medicine than I am. But the bottom line is, when people are bleeding to death, they need to go to the operating room. Sick people, trauma people need to be in the ER, and then they need to be in the OR in a reasonable time frame. And that really is what makes people better. Blood loss is still why people die of trauma. If you look at that young football player who was just shot, he was shot in the leg. He bled to death because it picked up his femoral artery. There was no other major organ involved. It wasn't that it hit his brain, his heart, his lungs, his liver. This is a blood loss shock question. And unfortunately, we tend to have a different set of mentality for trauma patients than we do with medicine patients. Trauma patients need to be aggressively resuscitated and aggressively moved to solving the problem. Too little, too late. If you think you need to get people in, get them in now. Don't be hunting for folks 
as the workup progresses. I think that those people who are experienced in trauma, if someone comes in with a large knife still in their abdomen, the chances that they need to see surgery are good. If they come in with a bullet wound in their abdomen, it's virtually 100%. Let me give you a case to illustrate this. A young Hispanic male is involved in the unauthorized driving away of a motor vehicle in Broward County, Florida. A Broward County Sheriff's deputy fires two warning shots into the child's abdomen. That's a warning shot. That's a warning shot. What, uh, if you yeah. don't stop, I'll shoot you in the head. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and so now the ambulance call goes out to the hospital that says, we're en route with an awake, speaking young male with a gunshot wound of his abdomen. I don't think this takes a lot of brains, actually. I don't know how much differential calculus you really need to know to figure out what's going to happen in this case. So now the emergency doc, seems like a reasonable guy, says to the nurse, get set up for trauma. By the way, get the general surgeon on the phone for me. Is there anybody here who would disagree that that isn't an intelligent thing to do at this moment in time? Sounds like a good idea. It sounds good to me. Surgery is good to be it sounds, it sounds good to me. So he talks to the surgeon, said there's a case on, he said he'll be in. Kid arrives. They don't need a chest tube. Plain film is negative. They put in a Foley. There's no blood or minimal blood. They've got two IVs hanging. The surgeon arrives. He says, let's go to the OR. The head nurse says, OR? Oh, you want an OR crew called in. So now it's 40 minutes till the anesthesiologist gets in there until they've got a scrub tech, till they've got this, that, and another thing able to go. And as they induce anesthesia, the kid dies. Now the lawsuit comes. First person sued, of course, is the Broward County Sheriff's Office. Of course, their defense is, we just winged him. We just winged him. It was the hospital that killed him. And, of course, the claim against the emergency doctor, if only he had adequately activated the system. Now, unbeknownst to anyone, those anesthesiologists didn't respond to the emergency doctor. They waited till the surgeon said they were going to the operating room to come in. But, of course, this is all chatter, which is going on separately. All that means is there's more money for the plaintiff at the end of this case, because what he's got, he's got two doctors fighting with each other. So now the general surgeon says at the time of trial, if only I'd gotten him to the operating room 10 minutes earlier, I would have saved him. By the way, the bullet severed the renal artery. And that's why. And of course, it was all well pointed out that if they clamp that down, you can live without one kidney. You can reconstruct that artery. You can do a lot of things. But what you can't do is when you've put two-fifths of your blood volume into your belly, you don't do well. Too little, too late. They hadn't activated the system correctly. And I think that this is the kind of thing that you can be sued for. If you're going to do it, do it. Or don't do it at all. Now, one other thing that came up in our trauma conference at USC was the concept of when the surgeon wants to go to the OR, what is the correct response from the emergency department team? And the quote is from Ed Newton, who is our director. And he says, whenever a surgeon wants to take a patient to the OR, your response should be, God bless you, my son. You should grease the wheels. Whenever a surgeon wants to go rapidly to the OR with a trauma patient, your job at that point is to help them get there. 
this is not a time to argue. When they don't want to take a patient to the OR, we have discussions. But when they quickly want to take them to the OR, lube up the patient so that they can slip down the corridor as quickly as possible. By the way, it's frequently the young surgeon who needs more information, more data, more this, more that. It is the older, experienced surgeons who know when it's time to go to the operating room. This would bring up no-no number two is that not everybody in the hospital who calls himself a general surgeon should be on the trauma list. The bottom line is in most hospitals, most of the general surgeons are not trauma surgeons anymore. They do hernias, they do gallbladders, they do bowel resections, they do appendices. But that doesn't mean that they're still current and competent. Many of them did these sorts of things in their residencies at major training programs like L.A. County and that sort of thing. But how much are they doing today that would keep them competent in those techniques? And I think that to have everybody on that trauma call list, unless they're actually doing big-time cases and they understand what they're going after, I think is a serious mistake. Although that's really a tough issue because in hospitals where there is an ongoing and increasing problem of getting physicians to take calls, especially surgeons, that to say, well, when's the last time you operated on a trauma case and is going to be really problematic because we're not a trauma center. We occasionally get these people who walk in who need to have a surgery. They're not going to be transferred anywhere because they're too critical to be transferred. And I think that there are some fundamental skills that surgeons have. It's called stopping bleeding. It's about clamping and sewing kind of thing. Whether they definitively can take care of the other issues, another matter. The other thing I wanted to bring up is some hospitals seem to have policies that nobody's allowed to call the OR team until the surgeon's there. Right. If you have a policy like that, you need to have your head examined because the fact is, is that the hospital is trying to save a few bucks by not having all of these people come in after hours if you're a smaller location. And the fact of the matter is that in some cases, it is patently clear that surgery must be done and must be done promptly. And you should be given the authority to initiate the OR team coming in. Yeah. And so let's say you're wrong occasionally. So what? So what? <laughs> exactly. Probably one of the biggest places where you may be wrong is ruptured abdominal aneurysms. You have no test. You've got a concern that this person is elderly. Their blood pressure is low. They fainted. And you think that this is an aneurysm. You have nothing to prove it. And yet you're pushing the buttons in terms of you're ordering large quantities of blood and you're getting the OR team together. You're either going to be a hero or a jerk. But the fact of the matter is, is that you have to move in those situations. With your case, did it settle? Did they go to court? They it settled money? for a large amount of money. Because my point was going to be, probably it might cost you $5,000 for a false positive of calling in the OR team, but it probably cost them many millions of dollars. Well, 5000 it sounds like it's a lot more than it really would be. Right. It's, it's probably more than it is. And the bottom line, you've got to remember that the people who are on call do get a certain amount of money each night anyway, whether they're called in or not. But that brings us to the third point of my list, and that is, what does your hospital really do? Rick raised the point. A lot of these people are not doing it on a regular basis. And if your place doesn't really do trauma, don't pretend that you do trauma. Now, if you're the only hospital in a region, you probably have to do the trauma. I understand that. If you're in Los Angeles County, there's got to be 15 hospitals, 20 hospitals in this county that have house staff that are prepared to do major trauma. And if you're not prepared to do it, don't pretend that you do it. Because no matter what we think of some of the younger residents' care, 
It may not be perfect. But you know what? When I'm in a bad drama situation, I want those people available at 2 o'clock in the morning to reevaluate me, to look at me, to decide whether we need to go back to the operating room. That's really part of the deal. And this pretending to do things that you don't do is a serious problem. Let me give you the case. A child at a medium-sized hospital in a small town in Michigan, which will remain nameless, The child was hit in the back of the head with a wooden swing seat at the playground. The child vomited a few times, was brought into the emergency department, looked reasonably well at that time, was awake. The family practitioner said to the emergency doctor, when called, said, why don't you just admit them to the floor and let the nurses do neuro checks? Well, neuro checks in a hospital that doesn't have a neuro unit have nothing to do with what neuro checks are at a place that has a neuro unit. Neuro checks in a small hospital have to do with is he awake or alert? Do the pupils move? You realize by the time the pupils don't move, you're damn near dead. The real neuro checks are looking for things like perseveration of speech and pronator drift and things like that. That's how real neuro exams are done. Well, this child is admitted to the family practitioner's service, and now he vomits, and now he's blown a pupil. Now, there are two ambulances in that town. They're both out on runs. So now it's another couple of hours before they're able to put that child in an ambulance and put them on the way to the University of Michigan Hospital. By the time they arrive, there isn't one pupil dilated, there's two. Why would you admit somebody to a hospital looking for a potential disease that you can't treat If the disease shows up, that doesn't make any sense to me. They don't even have a neurosurgeon at that hospital. What were they going to do if something came up wrong? I think a lot of these hospitals get into kind of competition problems and ideas. Well, we have to be the center of health care for the community. You know what? That's just wrong. Be good at what you do, but be very clear about what you don't do and get them gone. And I think that the worst thing you can do is hold on to people that you don't know how to treat. Who's going to argue with that? We'd like to think it's clear, but you know what? You get into communities where hospitals get into competition, they get into bidding wars, they get into this war and that war, and publicity wars. The bottom line is they should be cooperating so that certain centers of excellence exist in certain areas. Somebody does OB and they do it well. Somebody does neurosurgery and they do it well. But to think that three hospitals in a town all ought to have neurotrauma capability, I just think that that's stupid. More than that, Rick pointed out the fact that there's only a limited number of guys willing to take call. You'd be much better having them concentrated at one center where their call life was reasonable. Have nine neurosurgeons at one center rather than three at three centers so that it's got a reasonable life to live. It goes beyond me that we haven't figured these problems out. What you're talking about is the rational regionalization of care, which doesn't happen in this country in most communities. It's a free market. It's market forces. It's silliness. That's exactly what it is. It's silliness. And just don't get sucked in. And by the way, they always ask us for our credentials. Well, what can you do? Can you do a central line? Can you split the chest? Can you do this or that? Why don't we ever go to them and say, by the way, can you provide backup in this, 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 and this? Can you provide these following things? You're asking to credential me, can I do trauma? I'd like to credential you as the hospital to see if you can do trauma. Well, the regionalization of care is something whose time has come. 
Los Angeles County just recently, I guess it's in the last year, did the regionalization of the MI care so that paramedics take an EKG in the field and if it says an MI, they bypass the local hospitals that don't do STEMIs and take them to the regional center. And this is in 2007, and Los Angeles County was really one of the founders of pre-hospital care, and yet we're kind of a little late to the party here kind of thing. Now they're doing the regionalization. Well, it's kind of the analogy theory. Well, regionalization of trauma care, very cool. Regionalization of MI care, we understand it. Now we get the regionalization of stroke care. Are we talking about the same kind of thing? It's an easy, slippery slope in some cases, and I think that's probably one of them. By the way, there are ideas whose time has come and gone. If anybody is thinking that in most urban areas, the owning or not owning of a helicopter has anything to do with the saving of patients, they're smoking dope. The bottom line is in most urban regions, I mean, we're not talking about the jungles of Vietnam here. We're not talking about the fields of Iraq. We're talking about L.A. County. It's hard to put them down. It takes a certain amount of time to get those people into helicopters. Most cases can be handled by rapid movement to a center that can act. You know, in Detroit, when the Detroit police were shot, one of their own fellow officers was shot, they didn't wait for EMS. They threw him in the back of a police car and beat hell for one of four hospitals. Ford, Detroit Receiving, those hospitals that do major trauma on a day-in, day-out basis. What they knew was, get it done now. And that really takes me down to the fourth point. Actually, we have a paper that's going into the current issue thereabouts that basically compared ambulance arrival to police car arrival. You're better off going in the police car. Absolutely. At LA County, they did a study a number of years ago, homeboy transport. Homeboy. They looked at mortality in patients with the same injury severity scores who had been transported by the homeboy, throw them in the back of the car, drive very quickly to the big hospital, versus waiting for the ambulance, and they found that homeboy transport was better. But I just wanted to say about regionalization of care, I don't want to work at the Fibromyalgia Center of Excellence. I just wanted to say that for the record. We have a a Fibromyalgia Center of Mediocrity. (laughs) You're on the list. The fourth point I was going to make is get them out. If they wander into your place and you don't do it, you don't have to test them to death. Many years ago, the study was done that what was happening was in trauma patients, they were getting every x-ray in the world. That was Trunky's study that looked at the number of studies done at outside hospitals before they were shipped. Now, you and I have all had a problem where from the outside hospital, we call in and speak to a second-year resident. Fortunately, that sort of stuff is disappearing where they ask stupid questions on a trauma patient like, what's the hemoglobin? There is no dumber question. If I slit your throat right now and take the hemoglobin of the first drop and the last drop, they're the same. They haven't had time to equilibrate yet. So when they ask stupid questions like that, what you know you're dealing with is a trauma amateur. But what you need to have is no testing, no nothing. If they're breathing okay and they don't have a pneumothorax and you've got the IV started, get them out. Because to sit there waiting... Has anybody here ever seen a 16-year-old boy where we did anything different when the electrolytes came back? I guess I've never seen it in my entire career. Well, although it probably doesn't refer to trauma particularly, actually, some of the doctors in Melvis's hospital here have been issues, not in the recent past, where we'd like to transfer some abdominal surgical case, appendicitis or something like that. And they would say, well, repeat the white count. Let's do another CAT scan. Calls with the results. And all of this stuff was a delaying tactic on their part. Of course. And it was done by junior doctors. But they had the ability to overwrite 
your desire to transport them because they would say, we're not accepting this patient unless you do this, 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 and this. And they would say, we don't need this, 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 and this. And they would say, we're not taking them. Is that familiar? That was the dark ages. And I was both on the receiving and sending end of that. At all of you, we used to accept patients and I would hear the residents doing that too. I'm like, there's a guy out there trying to send in a nappy and I want to get a... And like, if he thinks it's a nappy and he's got gray hair, then they send it over. No tests. And when we would try and send patients to USC before I got to USC, they'd do the same thing to us. It's like there's no group in the world that's able to pee on each other like physicians. Unbelievable. You know, my view of it is this. When I was sitting in the major centers talking to somebody on the phone, the rule is this. When they feel comfortable with out there, they are uncomfortable with it, and the patient's in deep trouble. Just get them in. And to carry on these discussions about, have you shot this view? Have you shot that view? You know what? Mm -hmm. It's just a total waste of time. I just think that we've wasted huge amounts of time and effort. If you want to draw some bloods and tape them to the patient and send them, that's fine. But to delay sending them to get something done is not only a huge waste of time, but again, where I want to go, when I want my family member to go, if they're bleeding, is the operating room. Let me go back to the point that you started out with, the too little, too late phenomenon. I've been reading a number of papers recently about massive transfusions, and some of the papers have looked at what people have received with regard to plaque cells and plaque cells, platelets, and fresh frozen plasma. And there is this thread through these papers of under-resuscitation of the red cells and the fresh frozen, and that it is done in a haphazard, chaotic manner where, in fact, they're able to show not only in the setting of trauma, but there was a great paper that looked at ruptured aortic aneurysms. Outcomes were much better when patients had large numbers of platelets, which were tended to be omitted because all the doctors thought was blood, 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 blood. And they were basically inadequately resuscitated because of the lack of the appropriate other things other than red cells that these people need. Now, this goes back to our first point, though, about what do you do on a day-in, day-out basis? And I think people who day in, day out do trauma resuscitation are probably better at thinking about those issues. But unfortunately, everybody needs to know about this because a ruptured aneurysm will walk into any emergency department. Correct. There's not going to be a regional aneurysm center that I think is on the horizon. So aggressive transfusion practices, I think we all need to know about that. Point number five, sick trauma patients need a trauma team. We tend to think that the surgeon functions in a way that he kind of knows what's going on. Surgeons have become more and more regional, regional in their thinking. If the emergency doc is going to keep a hold of this issue, if that patient's going to be in the department and this is what's happening, a surgeon may come down and say, okay, we're going to get a CAT scan, this, this, or this, and then they disappear. They're gone. The emergency doc has to function almost in the general contractor mode. And that is you can't do it sequentially. You can't talk to general surgery, then talk to neurosurgery. Sometimes you have to get two or three people involved in this case. And you've got to feel comfortable in manipulating the. I certainly remember the days when they double-teamed cases, when they would relieve a subdural at the same time they were stopping bleeding in the abdomen. If you actually look at why people die from trauma, heads constitute about a quarter to a third of those deaths. And to think that just having a general surgeon is going to solve this issue, no, it's not. Because the last thing I want for my kid is to have them stop the bleeding in the abdomen, and then they've got poor neurological outcome. To me, that is not an acceptable outcome, is to have a bad brain at the end of the event that could have been avoided. 
And certainly you've got to keep up with this literature, though, because we know now that non-operative management of injuries that used to go straight to the OR is now standard care in lots of places. So one has to keep up using the abstracts and other things to know that there's a lot of spleens now that don't have to go to the OR. There's a lot of level acts that don't go to the OR. So understanding that will be important for you not to call in teams at inappropriate times. So you just have to keep up with it, though. I mean, it although, has changed radically. Although those are not ER physician decisions and those require a surgeon to be present and the fact that you have a spleen that is injured but does not need surgery means that you probably don't have much compromise at all in your vital signs etc etc and it's kind of almost like an incidental finding but if you're hypotensive and there's a surgeon in the process that's not going to be your call fortunately that's going to be regionally dependent or hospital dependent la county has published extensively on knife wounds of the abdomen they actually had a paper on gunshot wounds of the abdomen which were treated conservatively expectant 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 we expect you'll die but some of you won't (laughs) expectant management and they went through this if it's low caliber if it's a 22 if it's a 38 now if it's a 44 we're going in that sort of thing but that's articulating things at a level that almost no other center can do it the only one that i think had a larger series was martin luther king and they're closed now aren't they (laughs) but they had the largest series i ever saw in a short period of time of gunshot wounds and the expectant management it was unbelievable you know i don't work at a trauma center and maybe i have an overly simplistic view of this but my sense is that it's not all that hard. you got to dial fast and know how to resuscitate and maintain airways while the surgeon is on their way in. And you shouldn't get of the view that you're not empowered to call the operating room team and you don't adequately know how to resuscitate, not only with clear fluid, but red cells as well. We actually have a case going on my next point is you don't need labs to treat. And there was one place that they had a trauma lab protocol. These are all the trauma labs, which you have to get. So one night, a patient comes in who's been hurt badly, and the gal down in the laboratory received all this blood. So she starts, as the lab tech, producing the lab protocol. So she's doing a tox screen. She's doing a CBC. She's doing a urine. She's doing a this. She's doing a that. The last thing on her list was the type and cross of the blood. Clearly... What you do is give them a tube and say, look, if I don't have type-specific blood ready in five minutes, there's a problem. That's sort of it. What is the lab study you want to know when you've got somebody who's tachycardic and hypotensive and has an expanding abdomen? What study do you want to know whether to give more blood or not? I don't know what that study is. We only have one tech in our lab at night. And if you were to do that and say, okay, we need an amylase and all of these other trauma protocol kind of things, you would shut down the lab. And the fact of the matter is, is that there have been many papers that have looked at the value of chemistry tests and enzymes and all of this other stuff in the setting of trauma. Basically, it is worthless. It is worthless. Now, I could take us down a rat hole, but basically, this is one of my pet peeves, that a lot of this has been pushed, generated by, and shoved down our throats by the American College of Surgeons, who have no understanding where most trauma care occurs, which is in small community hospitals. And so they look at it from the perspective of big hospitals with 50,000 techs that are available, come up with these guidelines, which we then all 
blindly follow or we feel we have to follow or Jaco tells us we have to follow, and they're absolutely inappropriate for the average amount of Now, when I was the president of ASEP, I got to meet with the trauma committee of the American College of Surgeons. I'm sorry. I'm <clears> so <throat> sorry. <laughs> well, we met in Chicago at their headquarters, and it was very interesting that the people they sent tended to be very big names from very big universities. So I said, so you resuscitate this or that? And they said, well, we don't actually. Our residents do. And I said, just understand, that may be good in a couple of hundred hospitals in the United States, but there are 5,000 hospitals. And in most of those, your fellow general surgeons are expecting us to do all that before they ever come in. And there was a clear communication gap at that table between emergency doctors and surgeons academic surgeons as to what was actually happening in Keokuk, Iowa at two o'clock in the morning. And at two o'clock in the morning, they expected the emergency docs to do most of the trauma evaluation. Then they would be called in if they needed to operate. But no one in that group of surgeons, their big complaint to us was, well, you guys don't call us soon enough. And of course, we're all sitting there looking at them saying, our guys say we call them too soon. We call them when they don't have to go to the operating room. See, what we want is sensitivity. What those surgeons want in community hospitals is specificity. If they don't have to operate, they don't want to be there. This is where the two sides were looking at each other over an abyss, which they clearly didn't understand. Because in most hospitals in the United States, there is not a senior resident in surgery who's going to take them, start the operation. There's been a lot of time and literature spent undoing the American College guidelines in terms of, well, does everybody need a chest x-ray? And the answer is no. Does everybody need a pelvis x-ray? And the answer is no. Does everybody need an ambulance? The answer is no. And basically, it's allowing the emergency physician to determine the tests that are needed and giving them some credit for understanding what needs to be done rather than saying, we don't trust you, so do all of this stuff. Right. Let me give you another hot button here with regard to trauma, and that is the opening of the chest is usually a waste of time. We go through this in the training programs, and I'm not sure whether all the training programs teach to do this, but there seem to be fewer and fewer indications for the opening of the chest. Well, do you want to qualify that and say blunt trauma? Blunt trauma. Thank you very much. Right, 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 right. Let me ask you this question, doctor. How many chests have you opened in the last 10 years? I did one. It wasn't a success. (laughs) (laughs) I'm over one. You're over one. Places where they know how to do this in regional trauma centers, maybe they're going to have better luck at isolated injury to the heart kind of thing. But you're picking out, again, low-velocity penetrating trauma. You're not talking about somebody who is smashed by a truck on the highway. But this is not going to be, for us, a risk management issue. Whether it is or it's not, there's certainly people who have been sued for, quote-unquote, not opening the chest. And in my view, just the discussion is almost hilarious. The number of emergency docs who actually open the chest anymore per year has got to be pitifully small unless you work in a place like L.A. County. And the only ones we get back are the penetrating ones, although there's this literature that says that there are subsets of blunt trauma patients you can get back. Basically, they have to die as they're rolling through the front door, and the thoracic or trauma surgeon has to be right there. You get some penetrating injuries back, but blunt injuries are silly. I actually cracked a chest at a community hospital a number of years ago, and while my hand's in the chest trying to sew up a sort of a, an atrium that has a hole in it, the general surgeon was happened to walk by, and he's like, what are you thinking? <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> 
The only time you should ever crack a chest at a blood trauma patient is between the hours of maybe 9 and 10 o'clock when I'm standing next to you if they get hit by a car outside the operating room, because otherwise it's not going to happen. Our nurses are an hour away, and it's like, get your head out of that chest and let the man go to God. (laughs) All right, number nine is, who's in charge when I have a series of lawsuits which have to do with orders left between the emergency doctor and the surgeon and maybe a second surgeon as to who's going to follow up with what when. Young woman's involved in an auto accident, moderate to substernal chest pain, imprint of the wheel on her chest. This was before the airbag days. And so now she's in the department. Now the emergency doc has called down general surgery, trauma surgery. The fourth year resident has seen the case says, well, we need to get this and that. We need to repeat the chest x-ray because I thought the angle was not right. To him, it didn't seem big, didn't seem large. So we need to repeat the chest x-ray and we need to do an angiographic study. So now what we've got is this patient over at x-ray. The resident and his team have gone upstairs to do rounds and now it's another hour. And now they're having trouble over in radiology. And now the worst of all worlds, the patient arrests in radiology. Radiologists are not cut out for that sort of thing. They don't like that. They don't want you sending people over there who are going to arrest. And, of course, the patient's sister, who is both a nurse and a Catholic nun, has been sitting there at the bedside taking notes. Who came in? What time was this done? When was the blood pressure down? Yada, yada, going on. And you can see this series of problems between the emergency doctor and the surgical team. By the way, the chief of that team, the actual boarded general surgeon, had only seen the patient once during the entire time she was in the hospital. And, of course, he's saying, not my fault. My residents were doing it. The residents were saying, well, we thought the emergency doc was keeping track of all this. So who was in charge at any one point in time? And I'm not saying that there needs to be a hard rule that it's always the emergency doctor, but who's ever in charge of the case needs to step up to the plate and be in charge of the case. That is, if somebody's got to follow that case, see what's happening, check the pulses, watch the this, do that, decide when blood's given, decide when the operating room is needed, that person needs to step up to the plate. Because you can't have two sides fighting about who's in charge of the case. The last point I would make is, and I think Rick is going to have some interesting literature on this, is if you're going to put a trauma patient through a study, do the right study. First of all, when the shit hits the fan and things are going badly, no one ever thanked you for saving money. No one ever thanks you for saving money. So we ought to do the right study at the right time. And the best example of that these days is in cervical spine injuries, Know which ones we pick up and which ones we don't, unless you're using a CT scan. Right. We have a couple of papers, actually, that address C-spine injuries in particular from the abstracts. One of them is a litigation of missed cervical spine injuries in patients presenting with blunt traumatic injury. That sounds like it's germane to what we're talking about. (laughs) Litigation, trauma. Yes. But where was this paper? This paper was published in Neurosurgery a place where no person who does emergency medicine except for our subscribers are likely to be exposed to this. It's got some interesting concepts. Let me just go through this a little bit. Barrow Neurologic Institute, these doctors, this is in Phoenix, St. Joseph's Hospital, looked at 20 closed claims. The doctors won eight. The patients won 12. When the patients won, they won big time, average 2.9 million. 
Well, this is C-spine, right? Cervical spine. Yes. These are people who it's going to cost three, $400,000 a year just to maintain those people. So right. it's not an unexpected figure. But one of the things you were talking about, Greg, is doing the proper study. These people evaluated these chronic cases. Inadequate or improper tests was an issue in five of these 20 cases. Inadequate or improper, like Shawara is not a plain film case. It's probably not even a CT case. It is an MR case kind of thing. Right. So you need to know. But Scoro, if you actually look at it, we don't know whose case it is. And by the way, we don't know what the treatment is for that. As long as we understand that, we're okay. I'm concerned about the standard missed fracture problems which are still out there. Well, they looked at the 12 cases that got money. And before we go into those more specifically, they did also talk about inadequate x-rays. And most of us in emergency know what an inadequate cervical spine x-ray is. Don't cut corners when you can't see down the C7. Don't cut corners when you have a bad odontoid view kind of thing, because nobody's going to have any sympathy for you. As you mentioned, nobody's going to say, I'm glad you saved money on not ordering a test. Six of the 12 Missed the subluxation. Now, subluxations, you got to acknowledge, are pretty tough. And for an emergency physician to be able to pick those up, mm, I'm not so sure. Four missed a fracture. And five of the 12 involved a misreading or failure to read an adequate test. So basically, who's reading these films and what are their capabilities? It would seem that the stakes are pretty high here. And that either you need to know how to read them well, or you have access to somebody who can and who will take responsibility for them. Those are the Nighthawks and this and that. Because if you're expecting a doctor to read a succubusation, well, good luck. That's not necessarily likely to happen. One of the conclusions of this paper, the author stressed the indefensible nature of failing to recognize an injury identified on an adequate imaging study, which means that if you take it, these guys say, at least, you got to make sure that the reading is done by somebody who's competent to read that thing and can do it consistently well. So they said that's indefensible. Or to act inappropriately when such an injury is found. You basically putzed around, didn't do the right thing, didn't immobilize them, etc., etc. They suggest a low threshold for performance of CTs be considered or might be warranted. And all of our literature says that if you really want to know take a CT. Well, if you look at the Nexus trial, which I still think is probably the biggest study ever done, the one conducted by our friend Jerry Hoffman, there is no question that there were multiple fractures in certain patients, and there were probably 30 or 40 percent of fractures which were missed on the plain x-ray, which were picked up by the CT. And as you take unusual patients, when you take that 450-pound guy who, no matter how you shoot, pull the arms and do all this kind of thing, you're never going to get the film that you want. Just skip all that and move to the correct study. I think what Nexus told us was there's a huge number of people who don't need anything. They're just fine. And what we're doing is we're clogging up our radiology departments and our emergency departments with a whole bunch of people who need nothing. If you do need something, then you need the good test. I had a patient come in who, from their auto accident who basically could not rotate the neck. At that moment in time, no matter what the plain film showed, he was going to get a CT. So I skipped the plain film and just went to the CT, and it showed me exactly what I needed to know. I just think that we're still caught in the last century with this workup. How come everybody who came in for years strapped to a backboard, whether they needed it or not, got shoot-through films of their neck? 
I have no idea why we did that. And I just think it was a waste of time. And today, if you want to find out if their neck's broken, get the right study. Although I think this is dangerous territory because I think the vast majority of people who are getting necks imaged is being done by plain x-rays. And I think that I don't want to in any way state what I think should be done or the standard of care should be or should be moving to. Although last year we did in the course, we did a talk, which I think you wrote. Yes. And it was entitled... Is the plain x-ray dead when it comes to x-raying the neck? And I think you had a cluster of these papers that said CTs are clearly better than plain x-rays. You know, Rick, you're right. The standard of care is that which is, to some extent, what's being done. But I don't think we can deny the fact that we're seeing a shift in this. There's a change in this view. The other thing is, early on in my career, an awful lot of people got three views of the neck who today would not get them. They would not meet Nexus criteria. And if you look at the criteria that Ian Steele put forward, the Ottawa neck, the C-spine criteria, they're a little more complex to go through, but they basically arrive at the same conclusion, which is most of those people who come in probably need nothing. Yeah, you've got to be careful you're not setting the standard as if you've decided to image, it's a CT scan, because Nexus is the biggest and it is the best. I think it has been oversold, though, but it says that if you've got a perfect C-spine series, in a patient who's otherwise low risk, then you're pretty good. You might miss a few, but it's pretty rare. Well, I thought Nexus was x-ray yes, x-ray no. Well, the sub-studies of Nexus is about plain films as screening, because Jerry in particular doesn't want to give this idea that if you've decided that you need to image them, that they should all get CT scans, because for years we've been using plain films, and where are all these misses? Where are all these misses on... Is that all the... They're all secretly quadriplegic (laughs) someplace. I have no doubt, no doubt that CT is better for a lot of patients. And if you find one fracture, you scan them. And if they've got neurological findings, you scan them. If they've got a head injury, you scan them. And for me, if the mechanism is bad, I scan them. Or if they're old then they've got the unibrate, I scan them. But there's also a lot of people, I think, the lower radiation, very well done, plain films is enough. There is a paper that was published in June of 2007 in the Journal of Trauma, which is in the December issue of the Abstracts. It's entitled, Prospective Evaluation of Multi-Slice CT versus Plain X-Rays for Cervical Spine Clearance in Trauma Patients. And it's a study of 667 trauma patients, virtually all of them 99% blunt trauma cases, taken care of at the Ryder Trauma Center in Miami. They were all nexus negative. They didn't have lower risk idea. They said, okay, you can x-ray these okay, folks. So they, they couldn't be cleared clinically. Exactly, exactly. Thank you very much. So they compared the three views of the neck plus supplemental views when they needed to, so they weren't particularly rigid about that, and CAT scans with sagittal and coronal reformation, which is kind of an interesting concept, basically, that says, listen, if you can look at two views instead of one, then you ought to do that. And we talked about papers where now they're doing that in the abdomen, find more stuff. But in any case, 9% had cervical spine injuries in this study, acknowledging that that's a high percentage, but they're all trauma center cases. Of these 60 people, 19 had multiple contiguous fractures and five had non-contiguous fractures. Again, making the point, Mel, that if you see it in one spot, you need to pretty much look at entire spine for these non-contiguous fractures. 27 were clinically significant fractures, meaning they needed surgery or long-term immobilization. CT, 100% sensitive, 99% specific. 
Plain films, 45% sensitive and 97% specificity. Plain films, 16 false positives, 33 false negatives. Of the 33 false negatives, 15 were clinically significant in that they had surgery or they needed long-term immobilization. I'm sure that there are people who would like to dissect this paper and say, no, no, the conclusions are not what the conclusions are, but I can't see it. I think that we are evolving and I'm concerned that lawyers might say, well, doctor, every paper looked at this says CT is better than plain films. Why did you take a plain film here? And now look at what happened to Mr. Jones. I think we're on really thin ice here. There's no question that the standard way of clearing the C-spine in this country at this time, in the majority of cases, is going to be shooting the three views of plain film. But as long as you understand its limitations... Yes, it's not very good. It's not, it's <laughs> That's not the very good. Well, and you understand that for the vast majority of people who get the films, it doesn't matter whether they ever got a film. See, the problem with running a study like Nexus is you've got to see so many people before you find those who are positives. When you have a disease entity, which is not that common in everybody who came in from an auto accident, then you're looking at a different group. Obviously, this paper that you've just quoted is looking at people at a trauma center, number one, who did not meet criteria to be cleared clinically, number two. So now we're narrowing it down mm-hmm. to a group that's going to be high risk. I agree. Yeah. Now, this is a few injuries, but with big outcomes, with right. bad outcomes. So you have to be careful. I really don't want us to be saying here, though, that the step is nexus, and if you fail nexus, if you cannot be cleared clinically, the next step is CT. I agree with you, 103%. I don't think we're there yet. There's people that you can get plain films on, and the only reason this is a discussion is because we don't have enough CTs, and it'll back up the CT scanner if we scan everybody's neck, and the radiation. Once we deal with that, and there are some things now which are beginning to deal with it, then we'll all breathe a sigh of relief and say, thank yep. you, scan them all. Yep. The radiation down the road, by the way, is not a small issue because a lot of trauma is in young people yep. driving vehicles who are going to live for the next 40, 50, 60 years, and thyroid cancer is a real disease. It's a real question. 80-year-old grandma with unibrape. Scan away. She's not going to die of a cancer. Well, she will, but it's not the cancer you gave her. That's right. Light her up. I mean, uh, say, light her up. You know what? Unibray. What is that? That's when you've got all the osteoarthritis and you're oh, yeah, one, 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 one fused vertebral right. column. Yeah. That's when you shoot a picture of the chest x-ray and you realize they're actually being held up by their aorta. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's been so nicely calcified. That's you know, right. Exactly. It's just right. replaced bone. you got new bone. And this is not by way of advertising at all, Rick, but writing the CT chapter for chest pain and just going through CT technology as a Writing it for what? For the emergency medical abstracts courses. And i got to tell you, the, the explosion in these machines, most people have a 16 detector machine, 64 detectors are the ones that they're now being sold, and there are currently one or two 256 detector machines which are coming to market with dual sources, which actually halve the radiation. You'd think two sources of radiation, more radiation, actually halves the dose of radiation. Do they have dual carbs, too? And uh, white walls? White walls, yeah. The stuff yeah. you can see and Bose the speed audio system. You can do it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> we'll all be getting CTs for everything. Oh, my God. 70% of medical radiation CTs. It's not good. I mean, most of the time, the answer is do nothing. But then when you need an answer, boy, it's pretty hard. Wait, wait, when you write with 256, you know, we want just, the real answer. We right? just really do not want this 
disc to be used in any way to suggest that the standard of care is to do CTs. It is not. It is not. We don't determine it. The community determines it, and the community doesn't do this. Greg told me that the standard of care is decided on that day by that jury, (laughs) by that judge. The end. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. That's what happens, unfortunately. Okay. So, Greg, you just went over the Ten Commandments of Trauma Care, the things not to do, the no-nos. Can you just give it to me? Bam! One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, go. Sure. Number one, too little, too late, under-resuscitation and delays in resuscitation, which really make no sense. Number two, who does what, i.e., most general surgeons in most hospitals are not trauma experts anymore. So who is actually on the trauma team and who is going to do it at your hospital? Number three, if your hospital doesn't do something, be honest about it and get the patient out of there as quickly as you can. To have the emergency doc shopping around for a physician when a patient is dying is one of those things which does not float well in the public. Number four, when you've decided that they're going to be shipped, No labs, no x-rays, no nothing is probably going to change that decision. Get them out. Make sure they don't have a pneumo. You make sure that they've got a line and buy. There's no reason to wait for laboratory studies. Number five, sick trauma people need the OR team. Do not hesitate to call in the OR team. Surgeons are good people, but surgeons need the backup of nurses, scrub techs, anesthesiologists, They need the rest. So the backup team has to be prepared, and it has to be a part of hospital policy that the emergency physician can call in the team. Number six, multiple subcontractors are a problem. When you have multiple physicians involved in the management of a case, decide who's going to be the general contractor and who's going to run the situation. Number seven, you don't need labs to treat. There's multiple studies that say that most of the laboratory work that we actually do when we decide to do it is a waste of time. You do not need to have a hemoglobin back from the laboratory to give blood. And most of the x-rays as well. And most of the x-rays as well, exactly. You can treat without it. Number eight, opening the chest is usually a waste of time. There are going to be very limited experiences for an emergency doc. One thing to remember is when you're dealing with multiple victims from a trauma, if you're spending all of your time opening a chest in a medium-sized hospital, nobody else is getting any care. And in most cases, unless it's low-velocity penetrating trauma, the only thing opening the chest does is start the autopsy. It does not save the patient. Number nine, who's in charge? Work it out. Get with surgery. Decide who's going to call the shots, who's going to follow the patient. What shouldn't happen is that patients are sent off for studies and no one knows who's going to follow up on those studies, who's going to be checking in on the patient. And the last thing you want is somebody going down the tube in the x-ray department. Next, do the right study. If you're going to put a patient through anything, decide what is going to give you the result that you need to make a decision. If you're going to need to operate, if you're going to need to put the patient in tongs, if you're going to have to do various things. So decide the most cost-effective way from point A to point B. And the point was made that no one ever thanks you for saving money when you've ordered a cheaper test, which does not give you the answer that you want. You know, briefly, it was touched on the idea, and I think you mentioned it uh, regarding head and neck. This idea, if they get enough injury to their 
head to warn a CT. It'll take two nanoseconds to do that neck. Throw that thing in. It's a good study. It doesn't add any time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let's shift gears. Let's do a case. Let's do a case which is not on common and emergency medicine. And I will start this discussion by saying the phone is your enemy. Nothing good comes on the phone. The phone is like registered mail. Nothing good comes registered mail. Well, nothing good happens on the phone in the emergency department. I'm going to present you a little case. We'll talk about this for a minute, and then we will talk about all the problems the phone can do to you. And if you think about the amount of time an emergency doc in his eight-hour shift is actually on a phone, it's unbelievable, and how unproductive it is. Here's the case. A young man is in high school, is a place kicker. All he does every day at practice is kick 200 balls through the uprights. He's quite good at it, as a matter of fact, being scouted by the major universities. He comes home to his father, is crying. Now, this is a tough young kid. I mean, this is the football player's football player, mean, tough kid, and he's saying, my leg hurts. Dad puts him in the car, takes him to the emergency department. Emergency Spartan doc takes a look at the kid. They pop a couple of Vicodin in his mouth, send him over to x-ray, x-ray negative. Comes back, still having pain. And they say, well, put the ice bags against it, see how he's doing. Goes home. Two hours later, he calls back. Dad says, you know what? My kid's still crying and having pain. The nurse, who's speaking to the family, says the usual nurse line, which is, if he's not better in four hours and 13 minutes. <laughs> but I'm off my shift. Yeah, see, because her, her shift ends in four hours and 12 minutes. Why don't you think about coming back? What you ought to do is just double up on his Vicodin. Well, that's about two o'clock in the morning. About seven or eight, he returns. And I probably don't have to tell you the diagnosis. But he's got an anterior compartment syndrome. Is it the five Ps? Yes, yes. It's It's the five Ps. And now they're digging dead muscle out of his leg. Now the lawsuit comes. Not only do they name the hospital and the nurse, but the doctor. The doctor who was the captain of the ship, who knew or should have known that there was medical advice being dispensed on the phone from the department. All I can tell you is... The phone in your department is not to give out medical advice. If someone calls in, there's always a preconceived notion and a perception that they don't think they're quite that bad because they're not coming in. They don't want to pay for care or whatever it is. And you think because they're calling on their phone, they're not that bad. So I can kind of throw out advice. Whenever you hear a nurse saying to anyone, well, how high is the temperature? You know they're talking about a kid as if we had an index that said at a certain temperature your kid's a certain degree of being sick, none of which is true. So why are we asking what the temperature is? I honestly believe that the response from the emergency department is positive. Of course we're open. Come on down. We'd love to see you. Can we give advice over the phone? Not really. The real good advice is given if we actually get to do something bizarre, like examine you, look at you, take a little time here. But the phone, as an instrument of giving out health care, has not been adequately documented. All these groups that talk about demand management over the phone, we're going to set up an HMO, we'll take phone calls, figure this stuff out. That's never been proven anywhere. 
Nobody's published that data that says they give out great care and they save 50% on the cost, that sort of thing. None of that's out there. What they're out there are cases like the one I just told you about. Let me give you another one. A group had set up a nurse information phone line, and a little old lady had taken her little old husband into the hospital to have a colonoscopy. In the colonoscopy, they removed a small polyp. He goes home, and the next day he has a fever. She calls the nurse helpline for fever advice. Did not mention that they just had a colonoscopy done, and of course they give fever advice. Well, the next day he has abdominal pain, so she calls up and gets abdominal pain advice. Now, the third day, he goes into shock. So she calls up, and she gets shock, shock advice. advice. You know, <laughs> elevate the head, feet up at 30 degrees, stud oppressor, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, of course, the old man has, what, a perforation. He has big brown on the loose, which is never good. So now we've thought that somehow by making phone contact that we were giving out regional health care. And unfortunately, there's been a very seductive problem in administration where they think, if you don't give out phone advice, you're going to make people mad. Somehow this isn't right. Well, you know what? Those people who didn't come in who are on the phone, how did we charge them again? How did we run their Blue Cross card through? We didn't. If they're sick, they need to be seen by people. Why would we think that we're so brilliant over the phone. You know, half the time, I don't know what you've got when I'm looking at you, when you're in front of me, when I've examined you. How good am I when I don't have the gestalt? And for, I think most docs, at least certainly from my era, would say that 50 or 60 or 70% of what we get about a patient is gestalt when we walk in that room. We can take a look. I know which kids are going to be admitted virtually every time. I know which kids are going to go home. I know which fractures need to be reduced just by walking in the room. And I think that to think that the phone has replaced this is a huge mistake. Do you go so far as to say, don't give phone advice? I know there are some. In fact, increasing numbers of emergency departments that just say, we don't give phone advice. Yes. If you're concerned, come in. That's the standard line. Let me tell you what's happening now in a lot of places. If you call the University of Michigan Emergency Department, there's an answering machine that says, hello, You've reached the University of Michigan Emergency Department. If you have an emergency, hang up the phone and dial 911. If you're a doctor wanting to talk about a patient, push 1. If you're looking to find a patient, push 2. If you're an obsessive-compulsive, push 3 continuously. <laughs> and, uh, and if you're a true psychotic, push any button you want. We don't care. The usual litany or menu. But what they're trying to do is keep doctors and nurses away for being put in that position of giving out medical advice. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. You know what? If you need to be seen, it's not like we have an established doctor-patient relationship. I know there are internists who are following their cancer patients. There are pediatricians who are following certain kinds of kids, and they talk on the phone. That's fine. That's not the relationship we have with patients. We do not have an established over long period of time where a small amount of intervention to adjust a drug dose or something like that would be adequate. If we had that kind of relationship, fine, but we don't, in my opinion. 
Yeah, there's some phone follow-up that's increasingly occurring around here at least, and it's usually nurse practitioners, and it's usually, we checked your urine culture, we're just calling you back to let you know it's negative, we had the radiologist check your x-rays, they're negative, or if they're positive, could you please come back? That's a different kind of phone follow-up, that's not phone advice for the acute situation. Well, that's exactly right, and the other thing is, if you're asking about a specific question, i.e., we're calling to let you know X... Now, you need to have a response, which is, your culture is positive. This is where you're going, and this is when you will be there. Again, it's not the end of the experience. It's just another way back into the cycle. By the way, the phone number question always comes up. Make sure you get the right phone numbers. If you're actually going to call somebody, Make sure you get the number, which is correct. If you don't think we can't transpose a couple of numbers in a phone number. By the way, I'm sure at County, you've got all kinds of people who don't have a phone number. Yep. Or a legitimate phone number, or one that, that's working all the time. This happens on a regular basis. But actually, EMA, uh, you've done papers on that. It's just as likely to be our transcription error as them giving you the wrong number. Yeah, we kind of assume that they're trying to hide from us and dupe us and give us the wrong number, but that is true. The other thing is that the EMA literature has a bunch of papers about phone advice because the community expects it. Family doctors give phone advice out routinely. Pediatricians give phone advice out routinely. And the fact is, is that they hide their mistakes. It's an out patient. So if the kid goes to the doctor the next day, and the next day it's got a terrible earache kind of thing, which should have been seen maybe 12 hours ago, nobody ever knows about that kind of thing. I think one of the issues is that families believe that phone advice is a reasonable thing to do because so many doctors do it. In pediatrics, they get away with it because it's virtually impossible to kill a kid. 99% of the diseases the kids have are self-limiting conditions, which they physicians get away with. The two best papers in the databank were done by Vince Verdial, and Vince did something very simple. He just hired a couple of actors, basically, to call hospitals. One paper was done on calling pediatric hospitals. Another one was general adults. They would say things like, my father has abdominal pain. What should I do? Well, if they asked any more questions, it was epigastric pain. By the way, he's also diaphoretic. If you ask the other questions, do they ask the other questions? No. And so they were saying, you know, give them Maalox, try this, do that. On the pediatric question, it was, my baby's got a fever and it won't come down. Well, if they ask the other set of questions, the child's three weeks old. Clearly not the kind of kid you necessarily want to have diagnosed over the phone. But you know what? A quarter of the hospitals they called didn't ask the question. They were giving them dosages on Tylenol and not asking the right set of questions. I think the care we give out is mediocre compared to, for example, the poison centers of the United States have actually been quite good at this. First of all, because only one out of maybe three in a thousand poisonings or potential poisonings is actually serious, so they can get away with it. But the other thing is they have a limited number of things they ask and they always tagline, head into the emergency department. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. 
So, Greg, in other words, telephone advice is dangerous or can be dangerous. But I think one of the things we want to make it clear to people is that you can really piss them off. If your nurses say, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to give any telephone advice, that is not the way to do it. Rick, excuse me if I ever suggested that one be anything other than a gentleman, and there are obviously ways of saying that. Yes, so we're talking about basically making policy decisions, which suggests that without doing a physical examination, history alone is not adequate to defer care. I think that that would be our concern, that care that is going to be delayed or deferred based on only getting the history is a problem and that, in fact, nurses, although may be well-intended, their database is such that it can be very dangerous. So that's a given. My concern is, two: number one, that we don't do it in an offensive way and try to have the patients understand why we can't do that. And number two, there is certain telephone advice that we can give that will not result in a delay of care, like put an ice bag on your ankle and bring her in and we'll be happy to see her. Or, oh, your nose is bleeding. Okay, hold your nostrils together kind of thing and bring the patient and we'll be happy to see them. So there is advice that is not resulting in a potential delay of care, which is reasonable. You could even say, okay, your child's got 104 fever. I think we need to see them. You're welcome to give them some Tylenol before you bring them in. Because we're going to give it to them when he gets here anyway. right? And we're going to charge you a lot for it, charge you a lot for it, exactly. No, I certainly didn't mean to indicate that we don't do reasonable and intelligent things. But to oversell what we can do on the phone is a mistake. If you said something like somebody said, well, I just splashed liquid plumber in my eye. I would tell them to rinse their eye out and come immediately to the emergency department. But the tagline is, come to the emergency department where we can properly evaluate it and figure out what you've got. All the other advice that you give in between is perfectly fine as long as it doesn't delay care and we don't suggest to people that on the phone we've given them the same kind of care they could have gotten if we'd properly evaluated them. Okay, those are the only points I wanted to reaffirm. It turns out this phone ordering thing is really, really a major issue for a lot of ERs, a lot of ER groups. So we did a phone interview with one of our experts. Here it is. For our call today, I've got Sandy Mayha today. Sandy, as some of you know, has been with us in the past, and she's the vice president for risk management at Beta Healthcare Group which is my insurer right now in Southern California. They are the largest insurer of emergency physicians in the state. And Sandy's going to talk to us about some of the issues in regard to physicians writing orders on the phone as well as Greg Henry and Mel Herbert. Yeah, this is Greg and Sandy. Before we get going, I'd just like to extend to you my sincere apologies for the fact that you have to insure Rick. (laughs) I mean, just Rick alone, we could probably keep this series on malpractice going, and it's good of you to continue to insure him. Here to please, here to please, here to serve. He's a wonderful risk exposure. No problem here. Yes, and we could all learn so much from mistakes. Go ahead. You all invited me to talk about the politic of writing admission or holding orders for patients that are admitted to the hospital, whereby the ER physician is the only provider that sees this patient. And we have serious problems with claims and am frequently asked to provide an opinion to the group, is this a good thing or not? And I kind of put it into the category of no good deed goes unpunished. You have a very ambiguous handoff of a patient generally in the middle of the night or the middle of a busy day, and it creates tremendous liability exposure for the ER physician. I think the practice is done because of professional courtesy or the expectation of the medical staff that we, meaning the on-call physician or the private doc, is asleep, 
in his office, busy practice, can't get over to the emergency department to examine the patient, so they rely very heavily on the emergency physician to fulfill this task. However, it is not risk-free at all, and it shouldn't really be handled so casually. I think that many times the ER physicians feel compelled to do it because of pressure from the medical staff. I've been told that the medical staff or a specific department, internal medicine, will say, we'll look for someone that will write our orders in the middle of the night or we'll contract with a group that's able to fulfill this task. But bottom line is, when something goes wrong, the emergency room physician is a named defendant and generally holds the bag any time there is an adverse outcome. Generally, the defense that we repeatedly see with the actual attending or primary care provider is the old line, if I'd known, I would have come in, but that some element of the examination or history was not shared with the actual admitting physician of record, and they will routinely say, if I had only known, this patient had been managed entirely differently. Or I thought those were just holding orders that were being written, meaning diet and a little pain medication. If labs were indicated, I would have ordered them had I known this was the situation. And with patient acuity increasing, interventions are needed much quicker. And we just see some very serious outcomes in claims where our emergency room physicians have no avenue other than to settle the claim. Well, Sandy, this is Greg. Obviously, having been involved in this many, many times from both an officer with a group and having gone to court to defend doctors, what I want to know is, as the insurance entity, why don't you just, as part of the policy, state we don't cover the writing of inpatient orders. If the emergency physicians had that kind of backup when they went to talk to the administration, I think that would be very helpful. We talk to the groups about that very position, and we'll author letters on behalf of the group saying that our preference is that you do not write emergency orders or that you function as a scribe only, which I think is a waste of the ER physician's time. But if the medical staff is so strong and powerful that they can threaten the contract, it really serves the group little or no good for the insurance company just to pile on also. Yeah, this always raises the question of how hospital administrators reproduce because they have no balls when it comes to dealing with the medical staff. And I certainly agree with your comment that intellectual cowardice, the comment, oh, if I'd only known, I'd have come right in, Mm -hmm. is used all the time. No one should ever underestimate the intellectual cowardice of attendings when they're going to be involved in a lawsuit because blaming the emergency physician is a long and honored tradition in attendings. Although, if I could, even the American College of Emergency Physicians has softened its position on this. They used to have a position whose purpose was to support the policy of physicians not writing admitting orders, but so many of the members of the college said, we really do do this. We think it's reasonable in certain circumstances, or it's a combination of the medical staff wants us to do it. We write very limited holding orders, which they think limits their liability. Basically, bathroom privileges, diet, some routine kind of medications with a caveat call admitting doctor for the additional orders, which really doesn't seem to me to save any kind of time at all for that poor doctor who has to get woken again in a couple of hours when the patient finally gets to the floor. But I have heard doctors make reasonable cases that say, listen, I'm up. I know the case. I saw the patient. It's straightforward pneumonia. I can do this. Well, I think the best way to do this is with an order set 
that says if we're admitting an ammonia, if we're admitting a rule-out infarct, admitting certain things, then there's a standard order set of the hospital. But again, no one should ever believe that when you write an order or when you do anything to a patient, it isn't a risk-benefit question. If you think that there's going to be somebody who, in the great Netherland, who's going to protect you on these issues, you're wrong. What it is, the smart plaintiff knows that to involve another set of insurance money is the best thing they can do, because then you get two sets of lawyers fighting with each other, and the payout just goes up. Sandy, I'm sure this has been your experience. Oh, it totally is. And I mean, we had a simple case that we had to settle a few months ago, and the ER physician wrote these holding orders, and I believe that the ER physician in good faith felt that this is what the patient needed just to get the patient through the night. However, then when there were questions about care, the nurses called down to the emergency room for further clarification and additional orders. Now this ER physician is actually a primary care physician until that attending came in at 10 in the morning. That's exactly the problem. That's exactly the problem that happens that when a physician ever says to me, well, you know the case so much better, I say, good, come on in, get to know me, mm-hmm. get to know the patient because in an hour when they're upstairs and something's going wrong or in two hours, they need to be calling you, not me, for that continuous care. I think that if the best thing the group can do is get a letter of indemnification from the hospital that says, should we ever be involved in a lawsuit where we were writing orders, if you think this writing orders is without danger, fine, issue us a letter that says if we're ever sued for writing orders, you will pick up all the costs and charges and legal fees on our behalf. Let me write that. Can I ask you a specific question, Sandy? Let's say I have a patient, I admit them to the hospital, I write admission orders. When am I off the hook? Is it as soon as the primary care attending touches the patient, I'm basically off the hook? Generally, yes, generally. If the nurses start to call the attending or primary once the patient's on the floor in the unit, the chances of you getting off the hook are better. However, in our experiences with claims, the ER physician generally stays in the claim until the patient is actually examined by the attending. And so that's why we are really concerned about the acuity of the patient, the department that the patient is being admitted to. Say if it's a critical care unit, we would just as soon have that intensivist in the department when the patient arrives or the actual attending because of the acuity of the patient. But if the hospital has rules that allow the attending to make rounds every 24 hours, that ER physician could be on the hook for up to 23 and a half hours. Without resorting to Iraq War analogies, this is the bright line in the sand question. Can you look at that chart and know who was in charge of the patient at any moment in time? Because after all, if you admit somebody, you've got 10, 12 other beds filled with people that you're working on, and you really can't devote that kind of time and attention to people who are already in the hospital and out of your physical control at that moment in time. I maintain my crusty nature on this writing of orders. Whenever you can avoid writing orders, I think that's the way to go. Agreed. And and we haven't even touched the whole Intala issue and the CMS attitude about admitting patients without the care and attendance of the on-call specialist. Doubtful that the ER physician has privileges, the equivalent of the subspecialist, and CMS has said any patient that's admitted that is unstable 
they hypothetically could fall into that Mtala world, which just creates more liability. It can be a nightmare, and when the emergency physician has to answer for what they do, that's one situation. When you have to answer for what other people didn't do, that makes it a mess. So is the summary then... If you had the perfect risk management case, you would basically never do it. You would never write admission orders. And yet, in the real world, you're asked to do it every now and then. So just understand that you're liable until the doc comes in and touches that patient. Well, could I ask then, are there anything that Sandy and Greg would specifically recommend that you put down when you're writing some kind of orders that would tend to limit the risk? Well, I've certainly seen a few things which help to limit the risk. And the first one is, say you write transfer to the floor kinds of orders. And then the first order is call Dr. Smith for continuing care orders. That sort of establishes the time when things change. Wouldn't you say so, Sandy? It's a time-limited order, yes. I have in rank order, number one, don't do it. Number two, function as a scribe only. Number three, time-limit your orders by requiring the nurses to call the physician when the patient is received on the floor for Critical patients, the physician is in the unit when the patient arrives. That might be an hour or two later, but I think that's better patient care for the severely ill or injured patient. And then order sets that have been approved by the medical staff where the ER physician is doing nothing more than just activating that set of orders that has already been approved by the department and medical staff. And lastly, for those physicians who are in a hospital where because of bullying and intimidation, they have to write the orders. And I understand that. I mean, I understand that that is the norm in much of the country. Getting the letter of indemnification, which you attach to your contract, and then you send a copy to your insurance carrier, which says, should we be sued for the writing of any orders, the hospital will assume all costs, pay all charges. As soon as the hospital's counsel has to look and approve that letter, they're going to ask all kinds of real questions about what kind of situation are we getting ourselves into here. Agreed. It kind of shines the bright light on the practice. And is this safe patient care? I think so. Your point about the bright light, Sandy, is absolutely right. People never really want to talk about this thing. It's one of those little dark secrets of medicine that we think that good patient care is going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and quite frankly, it isn't. Right, I agree with you, particularly between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m. Between midnight and 6 a.m., I'm the best plastic surgeon in the United States. <laughs> Probably so. Sandy, I think that, that pretty much covers it. Appreciate your taking the time this morning to talk with us. And Greg and Mel, thanks very much as well. You're welcome. Thank thanks. you. Bye-bye. Bye. What I really care about is which wine of the month. Oh, the wine of the month. Well, I mean, let's get right to it. You know where we're going, Mel. We're going to your home country. We're, people. we're going to your people. We're going back to Australia. And again, the wine advocate, which is Robert Parker's publication, the one that came out just a couple of months ago, actually looked at Australia. It, it did probably the most comprehensive review I've ever seen. And here's something good to know. To most Americans, Australian wine means penfolds. It is the most distributed wine in the United States from Australia. They make some excellent wine, fabulous wines that carry with them price tags that go with them at the four and five hundred dollar bottle level. There is actually a small winery called Hobbs, which has some of the finest wine in the world. But then again, what we're looking for here is for the great value and Penfolds 2006 Shiraz 
slash Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, I know that that's going to drive the purists crazy. So if Jerry Hoffman's listening, sorry, Jerry. This is a combo wine. It is called Canunga Hill. Canunga Hill Penfold 2006. And it carries with it a 91 rating by Parker. And the current charge for that about 12 bucks a bottle. Wow, the price earning ratio on that one is Oh, this is the same people, this is the same winery that put out one at exactly 190 bucks a bottle from the vineyard next door. 12 bucks a bottle and just to quote here from the person who did the reviews, they point out that this may be the best wine value coming from Australia at this time. 12 bucks a bottle, Penfolds, Canunga Hill. Well, it's interesting because in the Aboriginal, as you know, Canunga means bloody good wine at a cheap price. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it meant men's room, second door on left. All right, ladies, we'll talk to you next month. Bye bye. Now it's time for outtakes. These are benign ones, but in the months ahead, you can expect them to be a little bit more interesting, shall we say. Dave, you'll have to edit this section out. We're trying to remove. Is the dog causing a problem? Oh, he's cool. <laughs> Cisco. Come on, Cisco. Cisco, get, get out of here. Get out of here. See, now, now, that you, now he wants to play. He, wants to, he, he thinks you're playing with him. Cisco, come here. Go, 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 Cisco. Go, go. Oh, you were saying, well, that's not an inadequate, you know, okay, we expect that, okay. 45% of those with injuries, uh, well, forget that part.